1: WikiLeaks dumps the Dumbo project. Separation of agencies is a way of rendering leaks less likely. HBO's hack is getting bigger, apparently. Group IB outs members of the United Islamic Cyber Force to Interpol. Cerebear goes after Bitcoin. WannaCry ransom payments are being moved, perhaps laundered. Lawsuits loom over NotPetya as more companies warn the malware had a material effect. The FBI says you can't exercise your right to be forgotten by DDoS. Election fraud in Venezuela, and your guests can eavesdrop on you through your Amazon Echo. But why would you have those people over anyway? I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your Cyberwire summary for Thursday, August 3rd, 2017. In a now familiar weekly ritual, WikiLeaks has dumped more alleged CIA documents from its Vault 7. These purport to describe the Dumbo Project, which is said to be a program that compromised webcams and microphones. Dumbo appears designed more to facilitate and conceal physical access than to serve as a set of collection tools. How WikiLeaks and others get their material remains a matter of investigation and concern to intelligence services. A study the U.S. Government Accountability Office released this week concluded that separating NSA and U.S. Cyber Command may make it less likely that cyber tools leak. The HBO hack seems to be getting bigger, seven times as big as the Sony hack, observers say, apparently taking quantity of lost data as their yardstick. HBO says its email system wasn't compromised, as some had feared, but fears that more shoes will drop remain. HBO has retained Mandiant to help mop up. Mandiant is of course the same company called in to help Sony. Russian security firm Group IB, working with Interpol, has identified a number of the skids who make up the United Islamic Cyber Force, the UICF, a crew of ISIS-aligned nuisance-level online vandals. It's not yet known what Interpol intends to do with the information, but the UICF operators are said to reside in Algeria, Indonesia, Kosovo, Morocco, Nigeria, and Pakistan. They're mostly known for website defacements. From Germany comes warning against a new form of spear phishing. No links, no attachments, just an email apparently from a colleague suggesting you look into the subject. Googling that subject takes you to an infected site. Personnel in at least three German government agencies have received the plausible and innocent-looking spear phishing. Security experts advise email users to treat the subjects of emails from colleagues with suspicion. Cryptocurrencies are now attracting criminals on the Willie Suttonesque grounds that, well, that's where the money is. In addition to the initial coin-offering theft we've seen over the last two weeks, the familiar ransomware strain Sarebear has undergone an evolution. It now has functionality that enables it to loot Bitcoin wallets. Some of WannaCry's victims tried to recover their data by paying the demanded Bitcoin ransom, despite the apparent botch WannaCry's masters made of their payment system. The amounts paid weren't in the aggregate large, but about $140,000 have been moved from the wallets to other locations, presumably by the criminals with access to the accounts. Merck has warned that its manufacturing operations were severely impeded by NotPetya, that the incident will have material effect on their earnings, and that they haven't fully yet recovered. Merck will not be the last company to warn. Byersdorf, which manufactures Nivea Cosmetics, is still investigating and recovering from NotPetya, but the company has reported that 35 million euros in sales will be delayed into the next quarter. There may be other effects as well, as was the case with Merck. Byersdorf is working first on remediation and restoration of operations. The Byersdorf CFO said, quote, "There is a cost and there will be a cost associated with this. We are still working our way through it. Our focus so far has been on recovery End quote." Six major international corporations, four in Europe, two in Russia, who've disclosed Notpetya infestations are due to report results this month. The plaintiff's bar has predictively taken note of Notpetya. A Ukrainian law firm, Yuskutim Attorneys Association, is assembling injured companies to join in a lawsuit against Intellect Service LLC, the company whose ME-Doc accounting software was the patient zero of the NotPetya pandemic. Taking a look at our CyberWire event tracker, the Cherdov Group has an event coming up August 23, 2017 in Palo Alto, California. It's called Security in the Boardroom. We spoke with Jim Flaging from the Chertoff Group about the event and about evolving attitudes of board members when it comes to cybersecurity.
2: People have now realized that security is a business risk. It's no longer just a technical risk. And for many, it's a top business risk. However, what's also beginning to emerge is that security is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to build trust with your stakeholders. It's an opportunity to create competitive advantage and ultimately growth. And so we see that as a really interesting dynamic to play out through boards. Because if you get down to it, boards, I think, really care about three things. And as a board member, it's risk management, financial risk, operational risk, reputational risk, and cyber risk, of course. And there's others. So risk management, value creation and then ultimately metrics, how do we measure and know we're on course? So it's in that lens of we think now that if security is both a risk and an opportunity, it really widens the aperture of what board members should be thinking about, what C-level executives should think about, and it was with that sort of impetus that we said, we think there's some room to both add value to how you should do this, and that's partly what we're doing here in the series.
1: So where do you think security fits in within boardroom priorities?
2: I would say that there is growing recognition at the board that this is a top business risk. And for large public companies, it's a robust part of their agenda. And there's many statistics from leading insurers and others who would say cyber has jumped up to near the top. However, when you look at the broader population of boards, and this would be reflect the boards that I'm on, is that cyber is far from a boardroom competency. In fact, through the Chertoff Group research, two-thirds of directors that we've spoke to report having little or no cyber knowledge. And 35% said, we leave cyber off the board agenda because of this lack of expertise and comfort. And finally, when you ask them, well, how would you learn about this? Board members learn from other board members. So they network. Board members learn from relevant stories. You know, and we're finding successful approaches from CISOs of share them stories that might just be topical in the news. Share them stories that might be relevant because it pertains to the industry that you're in. Or share stories that could present a clear and present danger to the firm you're in. So it's becoming known as a top business risk. But what we need to move it to is a boardroom competency. And that's what the overall objective of the security series is all about.
1: That's Jim Flaging from the Cherdoff Group. Their event, Security in the Boardroom, is coming up August 23, 2017 in Palo Alto, California. To find out more about upcoming events and to find out how to list your event on our CyberWire event tracker, visit thecyberwire.com. A gentleman from Seattle is currently enjoying a sabbatical in jail as he awaits U.S. federal hacking charges. The FBI says the defendant, Kamyar Yahan-Rakshan, undertook a distributed denial-of-service campaign against Legal.com in 2015. Mr. Yahan-Rakshan identified himself to Legal.com as being from Anonymous and told the legal services website he would shut them down if they didn't remove case citations concerning his prior criminal conduct. They didn't, and on January 24, 2015, he was as good as his word and commenced DDoSing. The attack stopped as soon as Legal.com took down the material he found objectionable. The suspect will face a judge later this month. You may have heard about this election hacking and influence stuff. Investigation proceeds in the U.S. and elsewhere. But if you really want to get a look at what a hacked election looks like, cast your eyes toward Venezuela where the Chavista government seems to have gone on a ballot-stuffing spree that would make a healer from Chicago's 10th Ward blush. Some one million votes are said to have been invented in a claimed landslide that brings in a temporary parliament to perfect the Constitution in place of the National Assembly. President Maduro's government claims a turnout of 8 million voters in Sunday's election. That's about 41%, but the opposition says the actual turnout was on the order of 12%. The company that provides the voting machines used in Venezuela, Smartmatic, says it knows with certainty that the election was rigged. Their CEO told the London Times, quote, Based on the robustness of our system, we know without any doubt that the turnout of the recent election for a national constituent assembly was manipulated. We estimate the difference between the actual participation and the one announced by authorities is at least one million votes, End quote. Most observers see this as a step toward a one-party state with a dictatorship, that suggests. But President Maduro says there's nothing to see here, so just move on. That is, move on with him to a brighter, more peaceful, more Bolivarian future, and so on. And finally, researchers at MWR InfoSecurity warn that your house guests could use your Amazon Echo to bug you. They suggest this remediation. Stop having creepy people over to your place. Joining me once again is Marcus Roshecker. He's the Cybersecurity Program Manager at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Marcus, welcome back. Um, I saw an interesting story come by from Wired. It was called Digital Privacy is Making Antitrust Exciting Again. And really the the notion here is that we have these uh, large companies uh, like Google, like Facebook, who are amassing these giant uh, piles of data about their customers and they might be bumping into some antitrust issues.
0: It's an, a very interesting question that's uh, being raised more and more. Uh, I think the first thing you know we have to do is take a look at what antitrust law is supposed to do. And really, there are two prongs to this, which is to, one, promote competition, and two, to limit barriers to entry for new companies to get into the market. And I think seeing these large companies that have such a great presence and such big influence, I think uh, most would agree that it is somewhat difficult for for new companies to get in on this market and uh, to be a serious competitor to some of these established uh, companies out there.
1: And yet, how would one even go about breaking up a company like this? Or or is it a matter of simply waiting for time to pass and perhaps uh, something like, you know, waiting for the next big thing to come along?
0: with this question that's being raised in the article about um, whether or not antitrust uh, regulators should be looking at privacy issues, consumer privacy issues, uh, I think that's a really important piece. Historically, uh, regulators have been looking at consumer welfare. and, And what that really means is the price, right? The price of a product is, would a price of a product go up because of a certain business deal, if, that is, if the answer to that is yes, then there might be some antitrust issues there. Now we're seeing these companies uh, offer a lot of their services for free, which means that there really isn't the price to look at to see whether or not there's a negative effect on the market or an antitrust issue. So some are suggesting that antitrust regulators look at some other factors, and one of those factors may be consumer privacy. These large companies are collecting more and more data, and that's really where their value is at, right? The data they hold can be monetized. Uh, it's incredibly valuable to have all this data on, on consumers and on users. Some are suggesting that antitrust regulators really should be looking at some of these other factors other than just price to see whether or not uh, practice, uh, business practice is anti-competitive and and bad for the market
1: so as it is now I mean are, are these discussions are, are more sort of uh, philosophical than anything and no one's there, there's no major push to break up Facebook or break up Google right now
0: yeah you're absolutely right I, I think a lot of these uh, these new ideas are more philosophical or academic at this point mm. but uh, you know we'll see how that how that develops um, i think there are some legitimate arguments to be made and certainly should be explored more we'll just see how how that develops in the time coming
1: marcus roshecker as always thanks for joining us are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers